Father, we continue in prayer and just praise you for your son, Jesus. What a beautiful morning, Lord, to lift up his name and sing specifically of him and to him. For we know that all things are for him and by him and through him. We thank you this morning for Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our King, our God, the one we worship, Lord, and hopefully the one we serve. And we know that many times our hearts uh, betray us, that we move in directions that are different than the ones you would have us to go. We know that our hearts are fickle and they follow after other things. And we confess our weakness and desperate need of your mercy and grace. But we thank you for Christ and the sacrifice on the cross who paid our sins in full. And we praise him for it, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, again, welcome here. If you're just joining us, my name is Jeremy Lobdell. I want to tell you a story about one of my old friends, who's a current friend, but we're just far away now. It's from way back in the day. And his name is Ken Thomas. Have you heard me talk about Ken before? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But the memory is very distinct in my mind because he is a very distinct fellow. Ken Thomas is a Marine who served two tours of duty in Iraq. He's also a welder, a bull rider. He heats his house like by the own wood he chops. And when he comes to church on Sunday morning, his pants are starched so tight that you can actually chop wood with them and they're yeah and they're all held together by a great big buckle that he won riding bulls this is my friend ken thomas and i am not kidding the guy can bench press all of those things all of those things are 100 percent true i want to say the guy can bench press a truck but i'm i think that might be just a slight exaggeration but he used to warm up with 100 pound plates if you know what that means that's a lot for a warm-up He's a big, strong, tough guy. Everything he does is all manly, but he has a tender heart. And so he used to give our children's moment like every Sunday in the church I was serving in. And he'd come walking in with his tight pressed pants and his cowboy boots and his big chest and march up to the stage and sit down and say, kids, come up. And all the kids would kind of come up and they'd look up at him. And he'd tell the story of whatever it was for that Sunday, and he'd finish, and he'd say, any questions? Kids say. <laughs> he'd say, good, go sit down. <laughs> and it worked every Sunday, no issues. <laughs> After a while, the little kids kind of learned that he had a soft heart, and they'd start to ask questions, and, you know, it was fun. But this is my friend, Gunnery Sergeant Ken Thomas, who I just affectionately called Gunny. Uh, today we're going to be looking at a question from a scribe, and it is um, not the, too far f- removed from that experience right there, and I'll explain why here in a minute. But we're talking about Mark chapter 12, beginning verse 28, where Jesus is continuing this encounter with his antagonist. He's talked to the Pharisees and the Herodians. He's talked to, oh, who was last week? Let's see, the Sadducees, there we go. See, I was struggling for a minute. And now he's going to encounter the scribes. So he's going through all these different groups of people who typically oppose him over and over again. And today it's a scribe, a singular scribe. Most of the time, um, the scribes come in groups. This is the only time ever Jesus addresses an individual scribe. That's of interest. We'll get to that here in a second. But... 
title of today's sermon is this. It's Our One God. And basically, I think you can summarize much of the entire Bible in those three words. Our One God. If you leave with nothing else from today, get those three words, write them down, um, memorize them, put them in the front of your Bible, do what you got to do. Know these three words, Our One God. And we're going to break it down like this. We're going to look at the theology of that phrase. And then we're going to look at the implications for our lives. The practical applications. The things that make us change. So number one is the theology. Number two is the implication. Number one is the theology. Number two is the implication. The theology of our one God. And the implication is this. I'll just say it right out front. But then we'll unpack it here in a second. The implication is that we love God. By loving others. Love God by loving others. So theology, one God. Implication, love him by loving others. Let's see how that works. In Mark chapter 12, beginning verse 28. It says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which is the most important commandment of all and jesus answered the most important is so it's a big deal right jesus is saying this is what's the most important the most important is hear O israel the lord the lord our god is one perhaps he said it to him like this because they would have known it in this way shema israel yahweh elohim echad Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher, You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions this is the word of the lord thanks be to god so our one god is what we're talking about today as christians we are monotheist and this is absolutely essential as we talked about last week to who we are and what we believe we're going to unpack that a little this week in the what people often call the great commandment or the greatest commandments and i started out a little bit by reading that to you in Hebrew from Deuteronomy 6.4. And the first word of that phrase you may actually know even though you don't know that you know it. And what that word is is Shema. You may have heard some people say, oh, the great Shema. If you're familiar with Judaism or the Jewish religion, then you've heard that term. And essentially what it is, it's a verb. It means to listen. And the reason it's called the great Shema is because that's just the first word of that sentence. 
It's not that fancy. And Shema means hear or listen. So the great listen or the great hear. Here's a picture of it you see up on the thing. So the word Shema is just translated like this. Now, um, Hebrew goes from right to left rather than left to right. So the first letter of uh, that word is that thing that looks like RW with dots under it and a dot above it. The dots under it are the vowels, okay? So the the first letter, the W-looking thing is the SH. Underneath it, the two dots, the E. The next one looks kind of like this, is the M. And under that, the A and and the Zayin would be the end character, which sounds like our H. So it goes silent. So you have Shema. Shema. So there's the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. And it starts out with the monotheistic or the exclusive claim that God is one. Jesus answers and said, here, this is the most important thing, that God is one. We talked about that a little bit last week. But the whole thing is, is if there's more than one God, then everything in this book just falls apart. It doesn't work. But if the Bible is true, if what it says is real, then there is only one God. And that has tremendous implications. From that flow all these other commands. From if, if I were labeling this sentence or this, this section of scripture, I wouldn't necessarily call it the great command. I might call it the great truth because all the commands flow from the great truth. If the great truth isn't there, the com- commands don't matter. They don't work. But what this means is if there is only one God, then he owns everything. If there is only one creator, if it's all his, then it all belongs to him. And if that is the case, then it is entirely appropriate and logical and right for him to say, all glory is mine, all power is mine, all worship is mine, all people are mine. And we as evangelical Christians who have brought up in this orthodox tradition, we say it in certain ways. Like, for example, we say the five solas. We say things like, we are all, all about, you know, scripture and the gospel and the glory and faith and salvation because those things only occur in Christ. In Christ, in Christ alone are all those things. So his ownership over all things, because he is the one God, he owns everything. Next, salvation. Like if he really is the only one God, then all these other methods of getting to heaven or saving your souls or looking for the afterlife are false. They're wrong because they're not true. They're not real gods. But if he is the only God out there, then there is salvation found in him and no one other. If you really are a monotheist, then you're saying that every other religion on the face of the planet other than Christianity is wrong. That's a big statement. But if this is true, this is what it says. It doesn't say there are many ways. It says there is only one way. It says that there is one God. Worshiping anything other than him is false. If the Bible is true, if Christianity is true, if monotheism is right, then this statement is extremely exclusive. And not only in theological application, but also in practical applications too. If Christ is the only one God, if there is only one, then that means we should serve no other. So in other words, all of our worship, all of our hearts, all of our soul, everything we are belongs to him. And thus, 
from the unity or the oneness or the monotheistic nature of God flows the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Why? Because it all belongs to him. There is nothing outside of that umbrella. It's his. He's the only God there is. It all belongs to him. It's entirely appropriate for him to command that because he owns all those things. His very power sustains each and every one of our breaths. It's all his. So some people will come to this and they'll preach it in such a way as to say, okay, look, there are four parts of a human being. I don't think that's accurate. If you look up Robert Pine's Humanity and Sin, it describes the human creature and how the Bible does it. Really, I think there are two parts of the human creature, the immaterial and the material. The immaterial and the material. And the Bible sometimes refers to the immaterial as the soul. Sometimes it refers to it as the heart. Sometimes it refers to it as the spirit. But if you chase these words down, they often overlap. So the distinctions that people make are probably more than what the text itself is saying. So what you need to know is there's a physical part of you. You know that. And there's a non-physical part of you as well. When you die, the physical goes into the ground. The non-physical goes up to be with Christ. When Christ comes back, he recreates your physical and reunites the physical with the non-physical so you're once again a whole creature. That's called, by the way, a complex dichotomist. Die is two. Try is three. Some people say we're three parts. But realistically, these terms are used interchangeably. Here's what happens. Heart refers to your emotions, your passions, your desire. Soul is like Zoe, your life force. You may have heard one of your friends named Zoe. You can tell her, hey, that's the Greek word for life. Your name means life. Wow, what a cool name you have. However you want to remember it, doesn't matter. Zoe means life. Your life force, your mind, the way you think, and your physical body your strength. So basically what's happening is Jesus is grabbing up all these different ways in which he's designed the human creature to function and saying there's this part of you, there's this part of you, there's this part of you. But holistically, all together, you, your entire self, your whole being, all of it belongs to God. There is no such thing as compartmentalization. You can't say, for example, faith And politics are separate. There's nothing outside the umbrella of Christianity. God owns it all. Everything flows from that. He is the one true God. So when he makes this first claim, when he talks about the oneness of God, basically he's saying because there's only one God, then everything else flows from that. One God owns everything. There's only one God to worship. And we are to worship him with all that we have and all that we are. Absolute oneness to him. Now that's a big deal. Because listen, in our society, we may not bow down to idols. Maybe maybe in some households there are. But in many places in our secular North American society, we don't have an idol that we worship as God. But we have so many hobbies that they easily distract us from our God. Many times we think these hobbies are just, you know, a a mental release and they are. 
But what ends up happening is, let's say, for example, I'll just pick on the golfers. I should pick on somebody else, but I'll pick on the golfers today. Let's say you're a golfer and you go out there and you hit a shot, you know, and it goes one way or the another and it's your hobby and it's fun. But then you're like, ah, man, I could have hit it better. And then you see the commercial for the new club and you're like, now that club, that would definitely make me hit it better. And then you buy the new club and you don't hit it better. And you're like, oh man, what happened there? Well, I need some lessons. And so you sign up for lessons and you spend more time straightening out your shot and getting everything right. And it's the same way with nearly everything. We think we could see something. We think we're going to buy it. We think we're going to fix it. And then it just takes more and more and more. And I'm just teasing the golfers because I don't play golf. But let me assure you, there are things in my life that go exactly like that. Oh, I can fix that. I'll just, oh man, now I got it. And it makes it worse. It's vanity of vanities of vanities. Oh, by the way, guess what sermon series we're going to do this um, fall? Ecclesiastes. Yeah, pretty cool, eh? A lot of vanities out there. And we're all chasing the wind. But what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your desire, all of your focus has to be towards him. And as soon as I get distracted, even if it's after a good thing, it's going in the wrong direction. And so often in the United States, what happens? We get distracted not by bad things, by good things, but too many good things become a bad thing. We need to be unilaterally focused with 100% of our devotion towards him. What's that mean? I never play golf? No. But I make sure to set boundaries and be intentional about keeping my heart's desire on him and him alone. There is one God. There is no other. And as soon as we're thinking about or loving or desiring or pursuing something more than him, then it has become an idol. Let me show you something else cool in this passage just while we're here. There's a contrast of two characters. One is Jesus And the other is a scribe. So here's a slide or a chart of that. I know we like charts here, right? So two weeks in a row, you've got a chart, all right? Um, One is a scribe, the other is Jesus. And you look at the way they work, and there's such an amazing contrast between the two characters. This has to do with the one God piece. The scribe, they interpret the law. They ask questions about it. They argue about it. But Jesus, on the other hand, he categorically determines the law. He says, this is what it is. Jesus can say, not Moses says or Isaiah says, but Jesus can say, I say to you. (laughs) That's pretty big. (laughs) If God does the law and Jesus steps out there and say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. That's a huge amount of authority. Way bigger than the scribes. Scribes have authority over the common people because they're learned and they're ordained and they're this and that. But Jesus is like, no, no, no. (laughs) Major one up. I say to you, Jesus determines the law. The scribe, he recognizes greatness. Kudos on him because in this passage, this is the one scribe ever in scripture who actually honors Jesus. By asking this question, he's actually paying homage or tribute to Jesus. Because this question, he was asking sincerely from a 
desiring heart that wants to learn. This is a question that was debated frequently in the synagogues and people go back and forth, different schools of thought. And he recognized someone who was putting the other questions just down like that. And he's like, hey, here's a guy to ask. So in other words, he pays homage to Jesus. This is the one scribe in the entire Bible that does. And so he recognizes greatness. The thing about it is though, Jesus is greatness it's not that he recognizes greatness he is greatness when you come back to the end what you see is when jesus compliments the scribe he says you are not far from what the kingdom of god how can that be they're in rome or in under roman rule they're not in rome they're in jerusalem or uh, yeah in israel how can it be that this fella is near to the kingdom of god he's near to the king and when you're near to the king you're near to the kingdom he's like within touching distance of the king of the universe and as a result he is near to the kingdom of god let's go back to that slide one more time thank you so much i know you've had it up for a long time and the last one is which i hinted at earlier the scribe here's the interesting part compliments jesus when he says you know you've said well But Jesus compliments him. This is a unique encounter. The scribe actually recognizes there's something going on here. And at the end, what it says is no one, as a result, no one else dared ask Jesus any more questions. They were like, Jesus looks around, any more questions? And they're saying, nothing they recognize that bam 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 one after one he puts them down with no trouble whatsoever and if they keep asking the more they do the more they're going to embarrass themselves not only that but they might just lose some of their own some of these people that were tight in their circles are all of a sudden like yeah this guy's pretty good i think i might just you know go over here a little bit (laughs) they're like oh oh, no more questions come back come back come back stay Don't listen to him, listen to us. No one dared. There is one God, and this text begins to show us very clearly who that God is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Hear, O Israel, Shema, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. Now, so that's the first part, the oneness of God. Let me show you something else here. The next word, the Lord our God. The Lord our God. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but let's unpack that for a minute. By the very fact that we say our, it implies relationship. If it was my, it's singular, but it is our and it is plural. And the idea is there's more than one character, there's more than one actor at work here. And so what this implies is this huge Old Testament concept called covenant or chesed or covenant love faithfulness and commitment is the relationship that defined god and his people throughout abraham isaac jacob and thousands of generations after that it is god's covenant love and commitment to his people you see this word here up on the screen Um, it's translated a lot of different ways but it basically means chesed is an undeserved unconditional commitment we have to say it like that because we want to say love but in our 
In our day and age, love is so different. Love is, I see something that I'm attracted to and I want it. And so I'm going to pursue it because it gives me pleasure. That's what we think of as love. I see value in that. And therefore, I want it for myself because I like value. I'm going to go get it. But what the Bible describes as love is the exact opposite. When God says that he loves us, it is not because of inherent value, but instead because of his undeserved kindness, grace, and favor that he sees something that's unlovable and he goes and transforms that unlovable thing into something beautiful. That's covenant love and faithfulness. It goes after the object of its love, not out of its own desire, but for the purpose of benefiting the beloved. In other words, agape or hesed love doesn't look for value, it creates value. It doesn't look for value, it creates value. It is not a feeling, but an active decision. And because of this word are, we recognize that this is the most important commandment because this is what drives the relationship of God towards his people. And it is what should drive the relationship of his people towards one another. When we look at this passage and it tells us to love God, it's a little bit strange because I've just defined love as creating value in something else. And if God is who he says he is in scripture, then we cannot create any value in him. He needs nothing. He is completely independent in and of himself. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need light. He needs nothing. He can exist in an absolute state of nothingness and be total and completely glorious and beautiful. He needs nothing. So how then do we love a creator God? And the answer is this. It is to love those who are made in his image. Remember how we talked about image not too long ago? Here's what it says in um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when it talks about creation in the beginning. Um, the Lord God created man in his own image and the image of God he created them male and female let me bring it down and say here's a practical illustration so early on in ministry one of the things that young bucks got to do is figure out what their calling is and often people go towards youth ministry because they're young they have the energy and that's the natural path obviously mine was different I started out as a um, preaching pastor at La Plata Christian Church and then uh, moved to a teaching pastor at a big church in Canada. And now we're here uh, because I knew clearly where my gift set was in preaching, teaching and discernment and not particularly in youth ministry. I'm not super skilled at that. It's just not the way the Lord designed me. But one of the things I did recognize was how much people just love their youth pastors. I mean, they love the youth pastors. So much so that I'd be talking to some of my mentors and they're like, man, I've, you know, oh boy, we're having this trouble and this guy needs to go, but I can't get rid of him because everybody's in love with him and da, 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 da. And it's an interesting situation. Well, I began to tinker with that a little. And as I, as I grew and had children, I understood the reason why is man, 
if you love my children, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> you know, like if you're someone who has made my parenting experience better, if you have directed my children in the path of righteousness for his sake, if you have been a blessing to my family, then there is nothing else better you can do for me than to love my kids. There's really no, I, I can't think of it. I mean, it, what else better could one do for someone else than to love their children? And so watch what happens is pe- parents just, you know, fall over backwards for youth pastors because they love their kids. Well, so too, that concept here in scripture, we don't have a lot that we can offer to God. We really don't. We don't have any value that we can add to him. But what we can do is love those who are made in his image. And when you love those who are made in his image, you're loving him. So the very best way to love God is to love others. The very best way to love God is to love others. Look, the, the title of this sermon is Our One God. Our implies relationship. God replies that exclusive one monotheistic thing. And the way we live it out is by loving others. Our mission here at Midland Free is this. We want to enjoy and glorify God. Embrace his word and engage the world. And led by the spirit, everyone welcomes, everyone plugs in, and everyone reaches out. One of the very best ways you can love God is to love each other. To love one another. And that's why we purposely write it here into our mission. We want to welcome one another. We want to bring each other in. We want to make people feel welcome and part of the family. And we want to plug in and give them a place and let them use their gifts to bless us and use ours to bless them. But we don't want to stop there. We want to reach out too. And so what we're going to talk about this fall, coming out of COVID, our theme for the fall is going to be to reunite, re-engage, and reach out. To reunite, re-engage, and reach out. Because we recognize we've been scattered. This thing has pushed us apart for a while. There's been all this controversy. We need to come back together again. We need to be one. And we don't want to stop there and just be navel-gazing, internal-focused, nonchalant Christians. We want to be on purpose, on task, on mission. And so after we built one another up, we've huddled, then we go out and we take the field. best way that you can love God is by loving one another. Now, let me give you a few specifics just today. That's a little hint of good things to come. There'll be more announcements about a couple different things that we're going to do different uh, in the future, uh, in the fall. Some cool stuff that'll help us do better. One one thing, just uh, as a heads up, is this coming week, um, Dave Shoemaker, uh, one of our resident theologians, is going to talk about what it means to be the church body. And the church gathered and what that looks like. There's all this, you know, uh, confusion about the church. And we see in the time of COVID as people come out that we are desperate for community. Even if you're non-Christian, how deeply it impacts you if you've been isolated for a long period of time. And he's going to explain to us what it means for the church 
uh, general and then what it means a little bit more for Midland Free specific. And then uh, the following week, Mr. Landenberger is going to speak of another former elder. And I'll tell you a little bit about that here in a second. But um, in short, uh, I want us this fall to really move forward and not be looking over our shoulder and complaining about this or complaining about that or talking about the glory days, but instead looking forward to life and the future that God has for Midland Free in our mission and vision for what it is now. And when we come together and reunite and re-engage and reach out, we will see God do great things. Amen? Amen. So uh, let me... Uh, give a couple practical applications for today and then we'll wrap this thing up and put a bow on it. Um, when we talk about loving others, I've talked broadly, but let me be very specific now. Let me give you some very specific applications. There's a lot of ways we can love others, but I think one of the most challenging is with our tongues. With our tongues. One of the, yeah, ouch is right. Um, one of the best ways that we can love others is with our tongues. And it's also one of the um, most um, damaging ways that we can uh, hurt others as well. Maybe I should even say with our fingers because on you know online we type comments or whatever else. Maybe now tongues and fingers are the same thing or thumbs and tongues and thumbs. There we go. I do a sermon on tongues and thumbs. <laughs> hold your tongue, hold your thumb. Go like this. Oh. No. Bite your thumb. <laughs> don't bite your tongue anymore. I don't know. But hold it. Stop. Stop. Stop biting. Stop biting others. Bite your thumb. Don't bite someone else. Don't hurt them. Hold it back. And then while you're holding, you ask yourself the question, is what I'm about to say edifying? New Testament teaches that let everything, every word, everything that comes out of your mouth be edifying. And if it's not edifying and it's tearing down, then it probably shouldn't come out. Hold your tongue. Bite your thumb. Use your tongue to edify. Use your tongue to build up. There are a lot of things that we people get wrong. We definitely mess up every day. And it's very, easily to, it's very easy to point out others' mess ups because they're so obvious and so clear and it's really hard to see our own. But if that image bearer belongs to God, then it's his job, not yours. Let the father take care of his children and you take care of yourself. See, a youth pastor is loved because they bless your children. But how would you feel about someone who attacked your children? Different story, right? Don't go after God's children. Love his children, build them up. Build them up, bless. Let everything you say be blessed useful for the building up another is anger that's one of those unseen sins that's easy to let fester inside of you and it's not as obvious as some others but it comes out in bad ways that's a difficult one and just just consider if that's an issue for you and pray about that and if that is then know that you can't love others if you're getting angry with them you need to overcome your anger another is pride I think pride's a really big one in our society because we're, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, do it ourselves, earn your way, climb the ladder, etc., etc., get your education, be the best. We're from Midland. We're going to, yeah. But it's a big deal. 
And what it means, the way I see it show up is this, is you go through a day and spend one day with someone and listen. Doesn't even have to be yourself, but spend a whole day with someone. And if they never in that entire time say, oops, sorry, I was wrong. There's probably a pride issue. Why? Because at least once in a day, I'm going to make a mistake. I'm pretty sure of that. And so here's my encouragement or recommendation to you. If, if you're like, oh, shoot, that's me. Then start here. Start here. Look for little mistakes that you're not embarrassed about at all. And just start admitting those like this all the time. It's like, oh, I was so wrong. I said it was 76 degrees out and it's actually 75. My bad. Totally blew it. I am so sorry. And start there. You know, and you chuckle. It's one degree. We get it. But keep moving it. And once you've moved it one degree, two degree, three degree, four degree, five degree. And the more degrees you move it, the more natural it becomes. And then the quicker you are to confess, the closer you are to Christ. Because you can't ever get close to Christ if you never confess. But if you want to move one step closer to Jesus every day, you've got to be ready to confess. It's part of getting close to Christ. So start really, really small. Start with little mistakes and just play them up. Enjoy it. Have fun with it. Man, because those are easy. I mean, those are easy to admit, right? Like, go for the easy ones first. Start there. But then you just get in the habit of saying, you know, you're almost practically Canadian, like sorry sorry just kidding we love we love canadians we live there for a while but get there practice confession as a way of loving others and what you realize then is the funny thing is as you love others you're loving god and basically you can say to yourself okay it may not feel like i love them but right now as i love them i'm loving god I'm loving God right now. I'm loving God. I'm loving God. (laughs) I love you. I'm loving God. Right? You know what I'm saying. Love God. And as you're loving them, remind yourself that that's who you're loving. Why? Because they're made in his image. All right. So we've talked about two things today and one is sort of our theology and the other is our implication the theology of our one god our one god our is relationship one is exclusive god and then the implication is that we love him by loving others so which is the most important commandment of them all c.s lewis in his grief observed um works through a number of deep philosophical issues in a very intense sort of way. But then he comes to the end and he says this, hmm, and now that I come to think of it, there's no practical question before me at all. I know the two great commandments and I'd better get on with them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord The Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And this is the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself.
Father, we thank you and praise you for today. Thank you for your word, which is true. Lord, um, sometimes we have questions. Maybe they're not even that important or they don't matter. But at the end of the day, we know what your commandment is. Because we are yours and we are made in your image. We are to love you and do so by loving others. Lord, help me to do it better. Help us to do it better. Help us to do it better as we come together as a church. And Lord, may we praise and honor and glorify you by loving your children. In your name we pray. Amen.